This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. Uh, he's also a senior economist for Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. And I'm a representative of Foresight Fund Services. We're going to have a really interesting show. We're broadcasting live from campus today. We have a guest in the studio, Daniel Paris, who's the author of a brand new book, The Ownership Dividend. And we're going to talk to his views on dividend investing. Daniel, welcome to Wharton. Welcome to Behind the Markets. Jeremy, thank you for having me on the show. It's going to be a fun conversation. Uh, I know you called it a radical idea to be focused on dividend investing. And uh, you've got two radicals here with me and Professor Siegel who who also believe in it. But uh, we'll, we'll come to that as well. But Professor, it was sort of a light week in the market. Uh, not a lot of data, but the markets are hitting new highs. Yeah, well, we crossed 5,000, uh, I'm going to talk about the significance of, of that. I mean, it's just a number, but it gives us a, an ability to kind of look back on history. But, yeah, there was very little data. I mean, the only – really, it was jobless claims. I, I like where it is. I mean, I think the sweet zone for jobless claims between 200 and 240,000, not too hot, not too cold. We have to realize it is a volatile number, so it may occasionally move out of those ranges but that's a range of, a, I think, a, a steady, uh, growing economy. The economy, um, of course, next week is, 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 is very important. We have the CPI. We have the PPI. We have retail sales for January. Uh, we have housing starts. So all we're going to be uh, getting the data. But certainly the real data is, is strong enough that we have been getting to basically, uh, you know, there's, there's certainly not going to be a cut in, in, in March, uh, unless things start falling apart very quickly. Um, and I uh, brooded the idea. I said, you know, the economy doesn't really need a cut if it is going this strong. Now, if inflation continues to fall, we get weakness in commodity prices. Um, then I say cut even with this strong economy, because you could be uh, that could be a signal that things are building up on, on that side. I also of course, would like the uh, yield curve to uh, uninvert and uh, get that short rate down. But clearly, um, at this particular juncture, uh, at these rates, long bond, you know, four, four and a quarter, and short rate where it is, is not hampering spending. Doesn't mean it won't in the future. Doesn't mean events won't come together uh, that, that, uh, uh, demand that the, the Fed uh, lowers rates. And I, I am very confident that if they see the data slowing, that they, uh, in fact, uh, will uh, lower rates. So, um, But at this point, we have a strong economy, and that's a better outcome for profits going forward uh, than we have, um, uh, uh, you know, a Fed cut. Um, I also see a little bit of signs of... Um, I'm not going to say over speculation per se, but, uh, you know, jumping the wagon on the chip stocks. Uh, you know, we have a Dow that's down, uh, you know, modestly and people just buying NVIDIA no matter what the price and on the chip stocks, no matter the price, it's, a, it's still the tech. I mean, it's still growth uh, surging relative to value. Um, and this looks like, uh, you know, let me get on the trend, trend followers. Um, they banned it now. I'm going to get out of these value stocks and I'm going to go on the trends. Now, these, that sort of a, a uh, situation can last an awfully long time, but it doesn't usually lead to happy endings uh, unless you jump off the train uh, on time. I, I, you know, I'm not going to say that you know, we're in a bubble with respect to those stocks, although we should be. I mean, we're no, people are saying, is this like uh, 1999? No. Or 2000? No. Um, the market is much more reasonably uh, uh, established. Yet the story that 
AI and the tech stocks that feed AI could be a bubble that uh, is beginning to look like what happened in the Internet should not be dismissed. Uh, again, we're nowhere near there. But, um, you know, these this this definitely talks about the history of the market. Talking about the history of the market, it is hard to believe we're coming up in a few weeks on the 15th anniversary of the bottom that followed the financial crisis at 666 for the S&P 500. And it just, uh, as you know, uh, Friday morning crossed 5,000. That's seven and a half times uh, the level before. It's a return, an annual annualized return of 16.6% a year before inflation and 14% per year after inflation for 15 years. Now, that's a return that more than doubles the long-run average, which, uh, as you know, Jeremy, we have calculated stocks for the long run is 6.8% a year. So it's been an absolutely remarkable 15 years. You should not expect this to continue, <laughs> certainly way above historical trends. Um, uh, the S&P has beat uh, the Dow during that period. Uh, the S&P um, growth has beat value during that period. Uh, during those same 15 years, the average annual return um, nominal on NASDAQ has been 20% per year. Again, a huge inflation on the growth side. Um, uh, I don't, again, we're, I'm not saying we're in a bubble. I'm, I'm, uh, the, the growth stocks are not the Internet stocks. They got real earnings. Their P.E. ratios are 30, 40. They're not 80, 90, 100. Uh, let us review the S&P 500 selling 20 times in this 12-month forward earnings. The S&P was selling 30 times. The tech sector was selling 60 to 80 times before on the S&P 500. We are nowhere near those levels. And by the way, back in 1999, 2000, we had a more punishing interest rate environment. Both the long run, uh, long term uh, rates were higher and real rates were higher. Uh, So again, two things. We're not in that sort of bubble, but remembering back there says, how far can you go? Uh, My feeling is, is that 1999 being you know, 24 years ago, still in the minds of a lot of people, uh, where when it happened back then, no one remembered a speculative. I mean, I think you had to go back to the 1960s to have a a similar speculative uh, trend. So that will not make it as overblown as before, but no one can tell how long the trend towards growth um, and tech, and in particular the semiconductors and excitement over AI, uh, will continue. And, and you are a believer in the impacts on the economy. I mean, that's one of your, I think your thesis is for real rates being a little bit higher is that you think productivity will be improved from some of this AI? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I said 50 to 75 basis points, uh, half to three quarters of 1% on GDP, and that goes directly into real interest rates and nominal interest rates. One of the reasons why I believe interest rates will stay higher, besides the fact that you know, people recognize them as more imperfect hedges, bonds as more imperfect hedges, and need to be compensated for that to keep that long rate you know, in the four, four and a quarter percent range. But no, this is definitely something that uh, is, is, is positive, will increase profits, and those that use it first will get, will scoop the profits, so there will be competition at a lower prices, improve uh, uh, productivity, and ultimately standard of living and real incomes uh, you know, for, for all Americans. And is, is your call that small caps can catch up the sort of broader participation in the rally is still a theme for the year? I, I mean, just on the basis, again, of valuation, and I don't see why small businesses won't be able to use AI in ways that are, you know, uh, as productive as larger uh, businesses uh, to improve their productivity and, and their profit margins. Again, when you're selling at 10, 11, 12, times earnings, you really don't need, you know, big growth to give an excellent rate of return for investors long run. But there's no question right now that the AI genera- is, is dominating all the headlines. Um, uh, and uh, that is where at least temporarily, uh, you know, investors seem to want to go. Well, Professor, thanks for giving us some comments to start the show. Have a good weekend and we'll see you after the big data next week. Thank you, Jeremy.
All right, we're going to turn our conversation to Daniel Paris, who is author of The Ownership Dividend, The Coming Paradigm Shift in the U.S. Stock Market. And Daniel, we were sort of joking that this was a radical idea, but why why is it so radical to focus on dividends in today's AI-driven world? Yeah, it's funny because my perspective is that it's, it's really not radical, but it's being perceived as radical. Uh, the book outlines <laughs> how, you know, normal markets in my perspective, from my perspective, including the U.S. market, operated for, you know, you could argue centuries. Uh, uh, and then what happened in the 1990s and for the last couple of days, decades that shifted that, uh, shifted the market away from dividends towards buybacks towards cashless uh, companies. And uh, the reason the article, the argument that it might be mean reversion is is not radical is it's just, it's a mean reversion argument. But if you go about speaking to market participants now and, and a lot of journalists now, they've become quite used to the market the way it is currently, the cashless or very low level of cash and um, the uh, buyback-driven market. I think that's normal. And I come off, I, I come to the market really with a, what I consider a historical mean reversion, very conservative uh, approach to investing, pointing out to investors comparing both past practices and practices in in real estate and in private business and in other mature markets and just kind of highlighting the anomaly that we found ourselves in for the last three decades. And yet it's being characterized as a radical argument because it does not really accept the status quo. Little surprised by that reaction. Uh, was more expecting the, uh, oh, that's a very boring uh, mean reversion argument. But uh, no, it said. It turns out I'm a I'm a flamethrower. Yeah, and uh, so people know at Wisdom Tree, I focus a lot on dividends. So we're it's, he doesn't have a real skeptic here. But I'm going to try to ask some questions, see where it goes. I learned some new things about the the academic arguments that were made on dividends. We'll we'll, we'll drill into some of that. But you have one of the the biggest non-paying companies, Meta, uh, just announced its dividend. How do you react to that? Do you think this is going to pressure? Some of these other big tech companies, we've got Google, we've got Amazon, Netflix, still some large, very profitable companies not paying a dividend. Is this the sign of the times? What did you take from Meta's first payment here? Yeah, so the book was published on uh, January 31st, and on Hot February 1st, <laughs> Meta made an announcement. So there's probably, definitely, you'll agree, a cause and effect relationship AI, there. he read the book. He's <laughs> like, I got to pay this dividend tomorrow. Uh, but- Seriously, I do expect it to be the first of many. The book does forecast, because of this mean reversion argument about uh, competition for capital and asset allocation, and and now that rates have stopped going down after 40 years and so forth, and for other reasons argued in the book, that the large successful businesses will start competing for investor attention in cash with, with dividends. And that company may be just the first. I do expect the others to follow suit. And in the book, it's not that hard. You just screen the top, you know, uh, NASDAQ 100. And sure, a number of them are unable to pay a dividend for a variety of reasons, but most of them are uh, in a position to do so. And it's just a matter of time before they come to the same conclusion that uh, that company's board did. I will note, however, the at the time that that company announced the dividend, it's the equivalent of $5 billion, which is, is real money, but they announced at the same time a $50 billion uh, buyback. Part of my argument is that the the bloom is off the rose for buybacks and that companies are going to weary of them. Uh, the public will weary of them. Investors will weary of them. That is very much a non-consensus argument. But in the case of this particular company, they, they inched in with a tiny dividend and a huge buyback. I will note that the yield on that security, even after the dividend, is less than half of 1%. So it's not really a source of income. But the symbolism of that large, non-dividend, new economy, social media company declaring a dividend, I think is significant. And I think we are going to see uh, a lot more down the road. And what will become an interesting test of those companies that can, I think will, what it will become a test of is those companies that don't probably can't. And there are a number of equally prominent businesses in, the, in those fangs or uh, uh, mag seven companies that if you look at their cash flows, they're probably not in a great position to pay a dividend hmm. and, and probably shouldn't. So another tool to distinguish among those companies that can and those that can't will be available to investors going forward. Well, I might see if I could follow up on who can't, but let's get to the dividend and buyback question because 
there's some history and you are uh, a noted historian on all these issues of what what causes a trend. I mean, if you go back before the 1980s, our dividend payout ratios, dividends as a percentage of earnings was very high. We used to have four to five percent average yields. We've obviously collapsed and buybacks have taken some of that. Was there a single moment that shifted the dividend to buyback debate? And what do you think causes people to sour on them? Yeah, I think the the book really is about what caused the dividends to be, not to say stripped of, but diminished significantly from the U.S. stock market. And there are a number of reasons, technical reasons that people will point to, and they're listed in the book, and I'll get to them in a moment. But if there's one overarching thread that ties it all together as to how we got to the current state and why investors might think, hmm, this could change. It's that interest rates were going down for 40 straight years. And the interest rate that I'm speaking of is the 10-year that matters most to equity investors. Uh, peaked in 1981, was abnormally high because of the inflation in the late 70s and the actions of uh, the Fed in the late 70s and early 80s. So uh, I'm not suggesting that's a normal rate, but the rates uh, began going down the 10-year uh, from 1981 and then bottomed uh, during COVID in uh, the autumn of uh, 2020. Uh, and year over year over year, having lower rates of interest, and I would refer to the parallel but separate lower rates of risk because interest rates are used in the academy. And I'm sitting here in the Wharton School of Business, so I have to be a little bit respectful of the academy. But we'll just say that risk rates derived from risk-free rates, I have a significant issue with. I've written a separate book on that. But let's just say risk rates and interest rates were moving down in parallel for 40 years. And that investors got used to that. They got used to the notion of increasingly, with each passing year, a lower and lower risk hurdle. In the case of, of uh, cash returns, whether debt or equity, the numbers got awfully close to zero in the 15 years after the great financial crisis, essentially zero risk rates and very, very low cash rates of return, even for fixed instruments, fixed uh, income instruments. And that really set in motion a, a sequence of events or was the important background for the uh, diminishment of dividend payments, the rise of the buyback. So remember, the securities law is changed in 1982, the safe harbor provision that allows companies to safely buy back their shares without being charged with uh, manipulation. So you have declining interest rates, the rise of the buyback. We do have the the rise of NASDAQ and Silicon Valley, tremendously productive, creative, innovative, world-changing technologies. I'm not going to cast any shade on them at all, simply to say those companies are now quite mature. Many of them are quite mature. So interest rates have, have stopped going down. The NASDAQ companies, many of them are very mature. Some of them have started announcing dividends, others will. And more controversially, I would say the bloom is off the buyback rose. It's very clear that buybacks benefit not shareholders, but share sellers. They benefit uh, Wall Street. They benefit management. There is a chapter on the book on geopolitics that frames all of this. The timing is not, you know, an accident. If you consider this the period of global neoliberalism, it lines up perfectly with the interest rates, and <clears throat> uh, others have no noticed this as well. But consider the following. 1979, Deng Xiaoping comes to power in China, begins a process of liberalization there. 1979, uh, Margaret Thatcher elected in England, in Britain. Uh, Ronald Reagan elected in the United States in 1980. You have a interest rates peak in 1981, the SEC rule allowing uh, buybacks to become more uh, prevalent in 1982. So all within a period of three or four years, you have a new epoch, a, a transformative shift from post-war Keynesian New Deal economics to more uh, Friedman and Hayek and uh, Fukuyama. And uh, the march of capital, globalization, deregulation, liberalization all occurs very successfully uh, for 40 years. It came at a cost, came at a cost of deindustrialization of the United States came at a cost of importing deflation from China. You could buy whatever you wanted at Walmart very, very cheaply. Everyone seemed to like it. The stock market goes on a multi, multi-decade long uh, tear uh, with a few hiccups. And uh, that period uh, works just fine and nobody needs cash. Uh, people are willing to accept a harvested capital gain because there's a harvested capital gain to be said. They don't need to be shareholders. They can be share sellers. Markets keep going up. Uh, dividends become less relevant. You don't need, even if a fixed income investor, you don't need 
a coupon payment anymore because the principal of your, your bond is going up because interest rates keep going down and seem to be going down in perpetuity. That all happened, lasted for as long as it lasted. Everyone gets used to it. The argument in the book is it's come to an end. Interest rates have stopped going down. The bloom is off the bloom. The buyback rose. NASDAQ has matured. And global neoliberalism basically blew up and has crashed spectacularly in 2020, 2021, and 2022. Um, and I think that we are moving towards a more typical, normal period. I refer to it as the cash nexus, where investors, asset allocators will look back to uh, more traditional standards of business investment, and that's going to include a cash payment. And so is the the higher rates is one of the catalysts. Is is there the something- The normal rates. The, the return of normal the, rates, non-zero, non-zero rates. Right, the right, non-zero for, rates. And so is, and is, that's the catalyst that puts pressure on people saying, what are you generating that you think, is that because it's going to become a tougher market environment? That Yeah, I think that that's, uh, so I've mentioned all of the causes there there's there are puts and takes and so forth but if if there's one that's a little bit more of the theme of the book uh it is it is that interest rates are no longer or risk rates are no longer zero yeah. and investors are going to insist on a more genuine risk rate in their calculations and cash on the barrel for for their investments. It's already the case with cash, uh, money funds, and so forth. It's already the case with uh, with fixed income and government securities. And I think it's going to increasingly be the case, even with uh, equities that heretofore have gotten away with not paying company owners any of the profits. Now, there's this narrative. I mean, the tech company narrative is, oh, if once they start paying a dividend, they don't have any more growth opportunities. Their growth story is done. Is that how you interpret the meta story? Do you think they're they're now a cash flowing machine and their growth is behind them? Is it a signal that, hey, they can do the metaverse investments and pay a dividend? What is the story on growth versus dividends? I'm sorry, I fell asleep. Did you say something? <laughs> Uh, such an old canard, uh, ridiculous growth companies for centuries have paid dividends. Um, it's only really the environment that we saw the last couple decades that allowed companies to not pay dividends. Uh, listen, there is a very large, um, company. Uh, I think it got into, started with, uh, online book retail, if I'm not mistaken. It's moved into other things. It's about 30 years old. Look at its numbers. It's 30 years old. See? Can it afford to pay a dividend? When is it going to finally get big enough to pay a dividend? How long do you ask company owners to wait for a cash payment from a business? Um, I, you know, at a certain point, either a company is profitable or it's not profitable. And uh, I, I just don't buy this notion that grow, we've had growth in uh, railroad growth, industrial growth, the 1920s growth, the 1960s growth all periods in which companies were able to pay a dividend and grow. And what we've seen when risk rates are so low the last 15 years that these so-called growth companies are also a source of tremendous waste. Uh, holding companies' management to the fire, to the a little bit of fire, not even the fire, just to a slight source of heat, there's simply nothing wrong with that. We are minority shareholders. I'm a minority shareholder. I do not control the company. Um, I, I have an agency cost, you know, so we're again, we're in the halls of, of Wharton here, you know, Jensen, Jensen's uh, uh, costs of, of, of competing for free cash flow uh, with management, the shareholder role, the dividend plays a role in that. Yeah, maybe if you literally have the smartest person on the planet, you want to give them- Warren Buffett. <laughs> you want to give them all of the money and you let them have free reign. But the reality, the world in which we inhabit is, no, I'm sorry, I don't I don't trust you that much. Uh, I trust you quite a bit to give you a lot of money, but at the end of the day, there has to be some control. Corporate governance in this country is very, very weak. It just is. And the dividend is a mechanism for a minority shareholder to at least have some corporate governance. Does that mean in some theoretical whiteboard classroom situation that a dividend payment precludes the investment that will you know, save the world. Uh, in theory, perhaps, but as a practical matter, owning 30, 40, 50 income streams and companies, uh, I am uh, more inclined to have some of that agency oomph that costs the the, the uh, holding management's feet to the fire a little bit. Uh, I'm not that concerned about foregoing when a company says to me, we can't pay you a dividend because we have this really good project. By the way, you know, the dividend investor is not trying to starve companies of capital at all. There are hundreds, thousands of companies that 
you know, should not pay dividends, growth companies, turnarounds, distressed companies, startups. We've shifted, as you know, Jeremy, to having, um, you know, uh, there was a time when startups and smaller companies were not in the public markets at all. They were were handled in the, in the private markets. Now you have more companies in the public markets. Now the pendulum is swinging back a little bit. There's more of a standard to have an IPO that the company should be at least viable, et cetera. That's all healthy. Um, we're not trying to deprive innovation, just saying at a certain point when the companies are mature, then it's not unreasonable for a company owner to expect uh, uh, their share of the profits. Uh, I am not concerned about stifling innovation. And clearly the board of that uh, social media company is not concerned about stifling innovation. If they have $50 billion to buy, to spread, uh, spend on buybacks, it's not an issue about growth. And if you do look at, say, the S&P 500 companies, I think last year came down to around $800 billion, but the year before that was close to a trillion dollars in buybacks. So if we have a concern about stifling growth, let's take it to the S&P 500. Why are you spending a trillion dollars on buybacks if you have so many good growth opportunities? That is not uh, 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 the, the canard of growth versus dividend just doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, survive examination. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to the reinvestment because you made some really interesting points on that in the book as well. But the on the buybacks, so that is such a political hot topic. Everybody loves to hate buybacks. And in theory, you know, the buybacks and dividends are very similar. Um, and you could say the same um, in terms of returning cash shareholders from one or the other. We, we talk about them being the same. Um, now you're shaking your head, so it'd be great to get your view on that. Um, I've I've found people so it, it, it's there's an interesting timing of that 1982 when people started doing buybacks, the the use of stock options to compensate management, and then people were just doing buybacks to offset the dilution from stock options. And so, yeah, tech companies do the most buybacks. But when I look at the vast majority of buybacks, I find people. Two thirds of them are sort of cheap value stocks that they think their companies are cheap, and actually they probably are. The people do say five percent buybacks or more of their shares. Those sort of high conviction buybacks, they these, they tend to be cheap companies. But you're hating on them from a different few ways. What? Why? Why would you shake your head so negatively that they're not the same as as dividends? So. <laughs> Again, in the halls of Wharton, brave statement indeed, but the academics, and, and some of your listeners will recognize the dates here, 52, 58, 59, 61, uh, all kind of when uh, a lot of the academic literature was written concerning this, they all make one assumption that a, an investor is indifferent and, it's a, and is a classroom blackboard uh, assumption that an investor is indifferent between a capital gain and a, and a cash payment. And the math of modern finance can't really exist without that. So I'm, it's a perfectly reasonable assumption, a perfectly reasonable classroom uh, assumption. Uh, but if you step outside uh, and look at the, the business world, uh, they are dramatically different. A dividend is a business outcome. Private company, public company, real estate, media company, anything, uh, share of the profits after investment expenses and operating expenses have been met. It has nothing to do with outside parties. A harvested capital gain or a harvested capital loss is a market outcome having often very little to do with the company and involving thousands, really thousands of other people coming to agreement. I cannot imagine an environment in which those two things are likened to each other. Now, Gene Fama, a Nobel Prize winning economist, financial economist, I am not a Nobel Prize winning anything, uh, commented once that buybacks are divisive. They divide people, uh, those who uh, understand finance from those who do not understand <laughs> finance. And I, I would add a non-academic, non-Nobel Prize winning corollary to that, that, that buybacks are divisive. They divide people who understand academic finance from those who own, operate own and operate businesses because they're dramatically different from that perspective. Again, if you make the classroom assumption that investors are indifferent to a harvested capital loss and a dividend payment. Oh, I'm sorry, harvested capital. They're supposed to be harvested capital gains. Never mind. Excuse me. Never mind that they could be a harvested capital loss. But a harvested capital gain is just so dramatically different from a, a dividend payment. Now, where do the buybacks figure in? So at the in the 1950s and 60s, when the academic environment that we inherited. And this is the topic of a book that I came out in 2018 about modern portfolio theory, a historical critique of it. Uh, 
uh, buybacks didn't really exist at that time. But it's not very hard to adjust Miller and Modigliani, uh, 1958 and 1961, for the era of buybacks that are ushered in in 1982 and really uh, pick up speed in the 1990s, uh, so that a harvested capital gain fueled by a buyback then becomes, okay, management now has the choice of a dividend or a buyback on the assumption that a buyback generates a harvested gain, uh, the ability to have a harvested gain. Therefore, because investors are indifferent between a capital gain and a dividend, investors should be indifferent between a buyback and a dividend payment. Same philosophical business-like difference holds. Um, one of those things is a market outcome. The other is a business outcome. Uh, having widget companies buy back their shares because they think they're cheap, they may well be, but that's not you know, why we own the shares. Now, that view uh, it, held by me is definitely a minority view. Most market participants think that buybacks are great. I'm just, I'm not saying they're dividends. not great. I, listen, I believe in dividends. So this is yeah. from somebody who believes in it, but they say they're better than great. You get a tax advantage and they're, you've got to pay taxes on dividends. If you reinvest your dividends, you're getting more shares. If the company buys back shares, you're also getting more share ownership. Um, but you get this tax advantage. You don't have to realize it when the company pays it out versus. Yeah, we, we should, I'd love to just stop there just for a moment just to clarify that because uh, it's come up in a number of interviews. A lot of invest uh, journalists seem to think that there's a tax, a significant actual tax rate differential. Since 2003, there has been no tax rate differential between long-term capital gains and uh, long-term qualified dividends. At the time that academic finance was being created, there was a huge difference. The only difference that remains is one of timing. Yes. And for certain investors, uh, that matters a great deal. Obviously, for a lot of investors. I, in my day job, I do encounter investors who seem more keen to avoid paying taxes than making money. They would happily lose money just to spite the tax man. That's, uh, that's their choice. My, my answer to that is uh, straightforward, and it's, it's in the book and some of the other things that I've written, subordinating investment policy to tax minimization policy is a choice. It is not a necessity. As I said, there are lots of people. I had dinner one with one last night who, again, would absolutely subordinate uh, uh, investment policy to tax minimization. That's a choice, not a necessity. It's a choice I don't, I don't make. Daniel, we, we, we started talking about some of the academic theory that first got people onto the idea that they could be indifferent to dividend policy, indifferent between dividends and capital gains. What do you think is changing? You talked about the interest rate environment, but what do you think is changing from a company perspective and that theory for why today might be different than the first papers? And you could give people some background on the papers that, that first established dividend policy was irrelevant. A dividend, uh, <laughs> the possibility that dividend policy was irrelevant. Yeah. So I'm a historian. So I... I I work in the capital markets by day, but I'm kind of wired as a historian. And when I run into something new, at least new for me, my instinctive reaction is to say, well, where did this come from? Uh, where did these rules come from that we follow? I entered the profession from a different profession. I quickly had to memorize the rules. I took the CFA exam in the um, 25 years ago, uh, three years up and down, but you know, very, very difficult, I'm going to say, unpleasant. Uh, but once I was settled into the new profession, I started looking, well, where, where did these rules come from? And that's that's where uh, all of the, the books have come. And the so-called dividend irrelevance theorem is from uh, 1961, uh, an article by uh, Merton Miller and Franco Modigliani, building on an article three years earlier about the uh, capital structure of businesses by Franco Modigliani and Merton Miller. Notice the order has been reversed from 58 to 61. And they made some very uh, sensible arguments in 1958 and 1961. The argument in 1958 was really shouldn't matter how assets are packaged. What should matter for their valuation is uh, the productivity of the assets, you know, how, how good the underlying business is. Sensible then, sensible now. 1961, in a period of, uh, you know, high dividend payouts and high yields, they asked the same question, said, is there an optimal dividend payout ratio of a company that maximizes the value of the company? And they sensibly looked at it and said, well, if you consider 
uh, the environment of our companies right now, particularly with their capital expenditures and their growth opportunities, it turns out dividend payout ratio doesn't matter a lot because the higher the payout ratio, the more capital the company is going to have to raise to pursue all of its growth projects. The lower the dividend payout ratio, the less capital, dilutive capital it'll have to raise. Very straightforward stuff, absolutely true at the time. 1961, the 1950s. If you look at the company at the CRISP database, which you guys at, at Wharton have access to, uh, and um, the databases that I had access to from 1962 on, it was a very capital intensive period for American companies, for American industry. Everyone is spending a lot to build out the global and the United States industrial infrastructure. So these companies were all running free cash flow negative. Any dividend that they paid out, they had to raise capital to uh, uh, to to pay all of their obligations, including their growth capex. So the argument at the time made a great deal of sense. Fast forward sixty years, and this is a couple chapters in the book looking at the data, the cash flow of the S and P five hundred companies, the top five hundred companies, top thousand companies. We have shifted from a manufacturing economy to a service economy. As a matter of fact, it's such a profitable service economy. We have uh, close to a trillion dollars of money left for buybacks above and beyond dividends. The choice of a capital expenditure or a dividend is no longer the primary choice as it was in 1958 or 1961. This is why it pays to be a historian. The rules that you're being taught in school about dividend irrelevance were established at a time when we had a very different economy that was affecting how corporations operated. Now, in a service economy phase, much more, we'll call it efficient, that might not be the correct term, but a less capital intensive, the dividend irrelevancy argument is just moot. It just doesn't matter because all of the companies that you see are uh, the major companies you might see in the S&P 500, uh, vast majority of them are free cash flow positive. The exceptions are kind of by definition utilities, free cash flow negative because of their CapEx budgets. To some extent, REITs are often free cash flow negative and the occasional industrial or materials company that's in trouble and doesn't have a lot of free cash flow but the uh, or companies that are in turnaround modes. But most of the companies that dominate the market and the uh, marketplace of ideas no longer operate in the framework from the 1950s, but we're still using the intellectual rules from the 1950s. I'm pointing that out and saying that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me as an investor in 2024. So how do, as you think about being a dividend investor, and, and we've talked about your book and being a historian, but you also uh, do oversee dividend portfolios at Federated Hermes um, without getting to any specific fund, but how do you think about the trade-offs on yield, this free cash flow metric that you're talking about? the opportunity in some of the different sectors and companies, what do you, how do you make some of those trade-offs as you try to evaluate where you want to position within the dividend universe? Yeah, it's a great question because for the last, uh, I've been involved in this for about 20 years and the market has had this kind of, this dividend light characteristic for the last 30 years. So being a dividend investor in a stock market has been a boutique exercise, kind of a minority exercise for the entire time that we've we've been doing it. And it does mean you have a somewhat constrained opportunity set. We meet all standards of, of uh, diversification by any and all government authorities and so forth. Uh, but it, it has been a boutique strategy for the last couple of decades because there's so many securities without material dividends uh, and or dividends at all. And so we, they're just not part of our opportunity set. But what we've chosen to do, what we do is to deliver a high and rising income stream from high quality business assets. Doesn't mean it's uh, market comprehensive by definition because so much of the information technology space and consumer discretionary space are just not available. We're not necessarily underweight, to use a term of art, those securities. They just don't exist for us. But there are plenty of businesses available uh, that can be put together, income streams that can be put together to deliver a high and rising income stream. Notably, there's been a lot of, um, you know, obviously the last four or five years, tremendously dramatic in the market with COVID and the market swooning and narrowing. And, and I'm forecasting a return of dividends and more companies paying more dividends. I actually saw the beginnings of that kind of quietly underneath in 2019. It got uh, distorted by COVID subsequently, but the the market for 
dividend-oriented investors got stopped getting bad, you know, uh, started getting marginally better really in 2019. And 2024, the opportunity set is getting larger. Now, again, not that social media company with a 0.5% yield, but because the market is so narrowly led by just a handful of securities, the valuations and yields of a lot of other ones that do have dividends has gotten better. We're, we're very, very comfortable right now with that opportunity set and with the growth in that opportunity set going forward. We talked about sort of two parts of the yield story. One sort of a high yield, but also a high and rising yield. If you had to pick, and maybe you say, I want best of both. I just want one. I want the other. Do you favor high that may be rising less? Do you favor low and rising more? How do you do you want do you want specific strategies tailored to each? How do you make the trade off between high and rising and yep. low and yeah, that, that's the art. Uh, uh, the marketplace is filled with uh, uh, low-yielding rising income stream strategies. Uh, 2% yields, 8% dividend growth sounds very, very good. The and, and Federated itself has products that are not dissimilar from that. And they're very, very popular in the marketplace. And they sometimes they go under the term of aristocrats and so forth and so on. And 25 a, years or 20, 20 years, yeah, 10 years that's, dividend growth. That's fine. The but the issue is just a simple, again, a business-like approach to the stock market. The issue with a 2% yielding investment strategy, no matter what the growth rate is, that the net present value, the DDM, the discounted dividend model, or the discounted cash flow, really, really stressed when you start at such a low yield. But again, that's been a great place to be in the stock market because investors have purchased a lot of those products over the last couple of decades, very happily so, because they didn't either need the income or they just used harvested capital gains, which were available, except for occasionally when they were not, harvested capital gains to fund consumption. Uh, my approach has been more traditional. The cash flow should add up now. And so tend to have a higher yield and dividend growth. That turns out to be the hard part. If you have a 4 to 5% yield gross and you're trying to grow the dividend 4 to 5%, that is, that's a very specific approach. That's our approach fairly uncommon in the marketplace to have that high of a starting yield and then growing the income stream. It is, uh, you know, uh, it is when you have a four to 5% starting yield, the hard part is growing the dividend. That's where you're making significant choices in terms of income streams and the, the, uh, uh, the growth rate of those income streams. It, it's probably an easier exercise to have a 2% yield and just let it go. You could just buy the S&P 500, frankly, you get like a 1.6% yield and you have to do nothing. The dividend grows, call it 8% a year, but you are uh, you know, killing the DDM DCF net present value when you do that, at least from my perspective. So that comes back to what changes it, and it's the catalyst of maybe sharply rising rates. But you don't. Do you think? Do you think rates have a sharp rising that would would cause valuations to compress? Yeah, I, I'm not. Uh, what I in the book, I really draw a distinction between the interest rates and risk rates because there's a section in the book that looks at all of the factors, and it's a long list of factors that go into the what makes an interest rate. There are just so many parties. There are a lot of chefs in the kitchen there, uh, and so I simply say, listen, I don't know where interest rates are going. I don't know where the tenure is going. Uh, to me, three, four, five, six percent feels right, but I, I make no such forecast. I do forecast that risk rates that is the real discount rate used by investors looking at a future set of cash flows are not going to be at zero and they are going to remain at normal or elevated levels, elevated vis-a-vis -vis the past, what I would call normal historical levels. And it depends on the type of business you're looking at for a large stable business that may be a high single digit uh, discount rate for anything riskier, you know, you're well into double digits and so forth. So I think that risk rates are going to remain normal or elevated versus the past. I don't know where interest rates are going, but your question is what's going to be the catalyst for making the book right? Other than, than Zuck read it and the next day announced a dividend, uh, that did not happen that way. Uh, I just think it's going to be kind of the, the disinfectant of sunshine that over time with all of the factors described in the book, interest rates no longer going down, the buyback phenomenon increasingly criticized and, and tiring, the NASDAQ companies maturing, and very specifically, the geopolitical risk that we're all facing as the, the former neoliberal paradigm uh, not only goes away, but goes away in flames. I think that's going to pressure a more cash on the barrel uh, approach to investing. And you're going to see large companies have to meet that standard. 
When I, I definitely took your point on that the internal financing needs of these companies changing, being very different as an environment than it was historically as one of the more interesting parts of the the theoretical debate. On this geopolitics, I, you, I, the, the cover of your book talks about having you have some history of looking at, this, at the Soviet Union and some history. Is there anything on the geopolitics changing today? Um, there's China, there's Russia, there's what's going on in in the Middle East, what's happening that brings it all for dividend investors? Yeah, I think it's just the framework that made everything so easy. Globalization, low interest rates, low risk rates, outsource everything to China, the, uh, the, the success, Francis Fukuyama success the, of the liberal ideal winning everywhere, all that literally in a three-year period dramatically blew up. You have China and COVID challenging the supply chains, the rise of China, Donald Trump challenging the structure that we have in this country, uh, attempted coup and continued uh, political threats. You have uh, Russia invading uh, Ukraine and challenging the European idea. And again, the, the notion that uh, liberalism, uh, uh, classical liberalism uh, is, um, is going to prevail um, and interest rates bottoming. Uh, so it's really a stunning start period, 1980. And uh, the beginning of the end, the end of the beginning in the 2020s, I, I can't tell you when the next large company is going to respond and go over to the cash on the barrel approach as a consequence. But I do believe that in the, in the years ahead, that's exactly what you're going to see. How do you focus on, we talked a lot about the US markets and the big tech companies here. When you go outside the US, it's a very different culture. Maybe um, they, you don't have as many, you know, you say you don't have any as big tech companies and that's part of it. Maybe they had different buybacks. That's part of it. The stock option compensation, all these things. Is, is there other reasons in your view why the culture is, if you go like to the developed world in the MSCI EFA index, it's like 95% pay a dividend. It's a much higher average yield. Yeah. Maybe your, your trade-offs that you're talking about is easier to find internationally. Any other things that you would say? Yeah. The US was anomalous. And uh, for one very good reason, because um, interest rates were coming down uh, kind of across the board for a lot of the developed economies in this period. But, you know, NASDAQ, and the innovation of Silicon Valley is not to be dismissed, or I, I, I don't criticize. I'm just saying those companies have now matured. We were distinct in regard to the buybacks. So we had the NASDAQ engine and we had the buyback phenomenon. And that really uh, contributed to tremendous success in the United States. But the, the reasons behind that have, have come, the very specific contextual reasons behind that have played themselves out coming to an end. You do see more normal, what I would call business relationships, investment relationships outside the United States, but you don't see the, you know, the, the rock star uh, social media companies. They just weren't created there. They were created here. They've changed the globe from here. That's all great. Just pointing out, okay, the rules will eventually apply to them as well. And, and so for some of the, the portfolios that you oversee, do you think, how do you think about getting international in them? Do you think people should allocate separately internationally U.S.? Do you, do you allocate to any foreign stocks when you look at U.S. US mandates? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and we, like you, kind of go through intermediaries and a lot of the rules and the third party gatekeepers and so forth. And so you have to play by the rules as to who considers what a domestic portfolio and international portfolio. Um, I tend to view a lot of the businesses that we own as global, but they're listed in a particular company and a, a particular country. And there are a lot of non-US listed companies, say global pharmaceutical companies, that are entirely dependent upon what happens in the United States. And US consumer companies that are entirely dependent upon what happens outside the United States, but they're listed as US stocks or non-US stocks. In order to just have a practical product set, we have to play by those rules. So we do have uh, both uh, domestically oriented, US oriented portfolios uh, and non-US security oriented portfolios. Uh, but as a practical matter, the businesses gender tend to be all over the place and, and the income streams, the dividends come from all over. But if someone's looking for a non-US non security product, you got to have a non-U.S. security product. If they're looking for U.S. only, regardless of the fact that half the revenues may be coming from abroad, but they're U.S. securities, so be it. That's you know what you have to have. But now when you look at a broad EFA mandate, like the broad developed world, it's half the P.E. of the U.S. So you get instead of 21 times earnings, you get 10 times earnings. You get you get that 4% average yield that yep. you're talking about. Um, 
Is, would you say that is where people should be hunting for dividends today versus the U.S.? Well, I think that's a known known. So we we happily would promote uh, our uh, and do promote, and they're doing quite well. Thank you, our non-U.S. dividend focused portfolios that is bringing non-U.S. listed company dividends to U.S. investors. But I think the real change that's going to happen over the next five or ten years is in the anomaly which is the US. US market. And that that's where you're actually going to see significantly greater dividend opportunity as the US market dials back some of the buybacks, the cash competition heats up, and, and companies come to the same conclusion that Zuck did. Is there policy? So we've talked on buybacks. You think the, the bloom's off. Is there is there Government, we're in election season. Is there anything the politicians should be thinking about on tax policy, dividends, buybacks, anything else that you would say that they should encourage this different mindset? Yeah, I don't know if we're going to end on a political note. I, I will say rather than politics, I consider sunshine to be the best disinfectant and I'm uh, not keen on government intervention in buybacks. There is already an excise tax that affects the uh, uh, the corporations, not the investors, but it, you know, it will have a, uh, a flow through impact. There's discussion of other taxes. I'm uh, the, the current environment and the environment from the last 20 years where from an investor perspective, the tax rates on uh, dividends and on capital gains, long-term capital gains and qualified dividends are at the same level. I'm content with that. Um, it's an environment where you have a different tax level that really begins to, uh, where people begin to make investment decisions based on tax minimization, not investment decisions. Right now, where the rates are roughly equal, that's good enough. I, when I first started, small funny story, when I first started working for Professor Siegel, it was 20 years ago, early 2000s, he was on George Bush's tax policy, thinking about when they were first changing the taxation on dividends. And this was also when you had the Enron and WorldCom accounting scandals, and there was not trust in earnings. And Siegel was saying, you know what to do to restore trust in div you know, in earnings was you should make dividends tax deductible, just like interest. And right, right now we encourage people to borrow to finance. Instead of doing equity, they would pay all their earnings as dividends and you'd put them on the level playing field. They, they, they lowered the policy rate on dividends, but they didn't do all of this, what Siegel suggested. Yeah. the For uh, listeners, dividends are taxed double, not necessarily at your the investor end, but at the corporate end because uh, the profits are taxed and then uh, they pay out the dividends and you're taxed on them. So it's double taxation, whereas for money that is borrowed by corporations, the interest is generally tax deductible. So there's this huge advantage to leverage in, in among corporations. That is that now that would be a that's uh, a big policy. That shift. would be a big policy. <laughs> that one I'm all in favor of. Um to, to leveling that up. I think that's uh, not going to happen. Of course. We, we could, in theory, this is a good in, in theory yeah, uh, that one's not gonna idea from the professor. Well, this has been fun. Thank you for coming to our Wharton studio. Chris, on the soundboard, thanks for helping us here today. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Again, check out the Ownership Dividend by Daniel Paris. Thanks for a great conversation, Daniel. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.